You're in with the ghost of radio. Welcome back. It's this, our shared podcast, all about and for mid-century horror radio, the greatest genre of them all, right? Of course, right. What do we do around here? We do what nobody else in this whole wide internet seems able to do, which is not listen to stories. Why, that's a dime a dozen. It's to discuss, to make sense, to enjoy, to do that good work that perhaps only a ghost can lead you in doing. So why don't we pull an episode out of the cauldron so we can get started. Ah, this week we have A Night in the Waxworks from Beyond Midnight. Our old frenemy from South Africa, Beyond Midnight, A Night in the Waxworks. Mm, all right, you know what to do. You go off to the internet, you go to relicradio.com, they have everything. Or you go to archive.org for the internet archive. Fastest way to get to what you want that way at the archive is to go into some non-tracking search engine and type Beyond Midnight Radio Single Episodes. And probably the first thing that will come up, especially if you're a ghost who listens to a lot, of mid-century horror radio is archive.org. However you get there, get there and listen to this episode and then come back here. We'll be waiting to make sense and enjoy. So, off you go. See you soon. All right, we are back. We're back from spending our night in the waxworks and what did you make of it? I almost did a compare-contrast on this, because um, The Price of Fear did this too, and I think Suspense did it too. It's obviously a familiar plot. Uh, Twilight Zone did a version of this. It's a profitable mind game question, you can't deny. You come out of all of those episodes and this one thinking, okay, (laughs) did another person take this man's life or not? It's one of those questions human beings love. We love to freak ourselves out with the impossible. And the key to being freaked out by the impossible is to always know in your heart that it is impossible. People never want these things to be definitively proven. That would make it no fun. You can't believe in something that's real. You can only believe in something that is mysterious and unprovable and infinitely tantalizing. So that is why there are so many versions of this story. But I thought, you know, I'm not going to compare and contrast them. They're all so very much alike. I put this one from Beyond Midnight into the cauldron, and that's where we went. Let's get into the story immediately. We've already gone through the whole thing, but let's listen to it. And the masterful, masterful intro that is always, always beyond midnight. Their intros were always so still and quiet that it's almost upsetting. And you really need that bounce from the sponsor spot afterward. Just from the intro, you're getting wigged out a little bit. That's pretty good. Oh, my God. 
last stragglers were leaving Mariner's waxworks. The uniformed attendants, glad that another day's work was over, were locking up. On the second floor of the old grey building, the manager, a stout, blonde man of smart appearance, was talking to one Raymond Hewson, who looked anything but smart. His clothes, although good once, were showing distinct signs of their owner's losing battle with the world. There's nothing new in your request. In fact, we diffuse it to many people. Young bloods have often made bets, but <laughs> we don't play ball. We've nothing to gain and something to lose by letting people spend a night in our murderer's den. A night in the murderer's den. That's what Raymond Hewson, the man in the shabby clothes, was after. Why? You'll find out. The waxworks. I must earnestly beseech you not to listen to this beyond midnight alone. Biotechs, the new soak and pre-wash powder presents Beyond Midnight by Michael McCabe. Oh, please, Biotechs. <laughs> Biotech, save us. We're going to listen to the full sponsor clip from Biotech's Infamous. When I say that Beyond Midnight is our frenemy, those who have been gathered around this cauldron for a while know there are two reasons. First, because this comes from apartheid South Africa. Second, because these Biotech spots were so aggressive and so aggressively contrary to the whole spirit of the still menace that was beyond midnight. They come screeching at you with their biotechs. It just works. They're so over the top. They're just so beyond over the top that you end up feeling affection for them. I had a letter recently from Mrs. V.P. Head of 7th Street, Parkmore, to Hannesburg, and she said, I cannot fully describe my utter delight on returning to the washing to find the stubborn stains of two months standing completely removed. I am so glad I discovered your product, Biotex. And now Mrs. J. Longman of Cambridge, West East London, wrote to say, Just a word of thanks for your new soak and wash powder, Biotex. I find it almost too good to be true. I've just finished my first packet, and I washed all my baby's woolens with it, and they really do stay white. And what is more, they keep their shape so well, too. Once again, thanks for a wonderful product. I'm just hoping you won't wait too long before putting a large economy-sized packet on the market. Well, thank you, Mrs. Head of Parkmore and uh, Mrs. Longman, for your endorsements. I, too, can endorse Biotex by making certain claims to you ladies, the most important of which is that with Biotex, the stubbornest, the very stubbornest stains just vanish merely by soaking. He is so frantic and so out of breath by that point and and just so worn out by shouting at us <laughs> all of the benefits of biotechs. Something about those ads is visceral for me as a ghost. It really takes me back to the days of the late 60s, early 70s, and what it was like to be a housewife struggling with the wash. Cannot fully express my utter delight. <laughs> That's a love letter to biotechs. 
all right, but we have to turn from that. And they do that whiplash turn right after his stentorian shouting. You get the little theme of Beyond Midnight comes back in and, and takes you back into the waxworks where you don't want to go. So our journalist who wants to spend a night there in the rogues gallery of murderers and write a story about it is talking with the manager and he neatly sums up the evergreen deathless appeal of being afraid of these figures, of being afraid of all sorts of things that you know aren't real. And that's what makes them so enduringly frightening. The fact that you know they're not real only makes the power of the hold they have over you stronger. I've seen those figures dressed and undressed. I know all about their process of manufacture. I can walk about in company downstairs as if I were walking among so many skittles. But I'd hate to sleep alone down there amongst them. Why? I don't know. There isn't any reason. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts. Even if I did, I'd expect them to haunt the scenes of their crimes or, or the place where their bodies were laid, not a cellar which just happens to contain their waxwork effigies. It's just that I couldn't sit alone among them all night. <laughs> they, uh, they seem to stare so. Well, I mean, after all, they do represent the lowest and most appalling forms of humanity. Now, I wouldn't admit this publicly, of course, but the people who come to see our murderers aren't generally charged with the highest motives themselves. No, the whole atmosphere of the place is unpleasant. And if you're susceptible to atmosphere, I warn you, you're in for a very uncomfortable night. Tell us what you really think. Wow, he doesn't like the waxworks. He doesn't like the customers. <laughs> it seems like he doesn't like himself. There's a lot to dive into there with the boss, but we don't have time to do that. We have to get to the segment where he's describing Dr. Bourdette, the murderer in question to Hewson, the journalist. It's nicely done, and it's what this story trades in, no matter who's doing it. You learn about this doctor and that he cut all these throats, but it never seemed like there was ever a struggle. People seemed to just let him do it. And so at the end of this clip where the guy has told him, oh, yeah, he was a mesmerist, a hypnotist. Seems like he hypnotized his victims. Oh, do you notice that? <laughs> Here's a chair. You know, oh, you can sit right in front of him. It's so much power of suggestion that we can bounce endlessly back and forth at the end when Houston says, oh, I thought I saw him move. Did he imagine it? Did the manager set him up? Or did that figure really actually move because he is the real Dr. Bourdette, as we hear later in the story, who moved his waxwork out of the way and then took his place when he was hiding from the police and he had to dash into that building all of a sudden. Nice little bit of doubt sown there. Maybe he did move because it's not the waxwork and it's actually the doctor. Oh, you don't know, do you? Oh, you don't know. You'll never know. The figure Hewson had indicated was that of a small, slight man, not more than five feet in height. It wore little waxed moustaches, large spectacles, and a caped coat. There was something so exaggeratedly French in his appearance that it reminded Hewson of a stage caricature. Who, 
Who is he? That is Dr. Burdett. Oh. Well, don't think I've... Uh... Well, somehow the name's familiar, but uh, I forget. Well, you'd remember better if you were a Frenchman. For some long while, that man was the terror of Paris. He carried on his work of healing by day and of throat-cutting by night when the fit was on him. He killed for the sheer devilish pleasure it gave him to kill. And always the same way, with a razor. After his last crime, he left a clue behind him which set the police on his track. Now, one clue led to another, and before long, they knew they were on the track of the Parisian equivalent of Jack the Ripper. They had enough evidence to send him to the madhouse or the guillotine on a dozen capital charges. And uh, they, they caught him then? Oh, no, no, no. Our friend was too clever for them. Oh. Even then, when he realized the net was closing, he just vanished. Disappeared off the face of the earth. Ever since the police of every civilized country have been searching for him. Oh. Where can he possibly gone to? I mean, with such a hunt on for him. Oh, there, there's no doubt about that. Did himself in, obvious. But in such a way that prevented his body coming to light. Now, one or two crimes of a smaller, though similar nature have taken place since he disappeared, but he's believed to be dead. The experts think the crimes of sense are, you know, the actions of imitators. <laughs> Look at his eyes. Yes, that little figure's a masterpiece. You find the eyes bite into you, don't you? Hmm? Uh, sort of, yes. Well, that's excellent realism, then. Hmm. What do you mean? Mesmerism. Pardon? Burdett practiced mesmerism. He was supposed to mesmerize his victims before uh, <clears throat> dispatching them. Oh. Indeed. Had he not done so, it's difficult to believe how so small a man could have done his ghastly work. Uh, he's very small, isn't he? Doesn't look very strong or anything. Well, there were never any signs of a struggle. There's an armchair here for you, Mr. Houston. It's the best we can do for you, I'm afraid. I hope you'll be able to get some sleep. Uh, Mr. Houston. Mr. Houston. Uh, uh, you know, I thought... <laughs> yes? Uh, well, I, I thought, um, just then, um, well, I, I thought I saw uh, the, the doctor, uh, Baudet. Uh, well, silly, but, well, I, I, I thought I saw him move. by now we all thought we saw him move <laughs> and with the other opening the story gives us i mean either it really is bordet and not the wax work or hewson goes crazy or the wax work really is evil and alive because it's full of malevolent spirit power those are our three doors and we can choose whichever one we want the other two will always be there it seems like the manager, if the door is that Houston just has a heart attack out of sheer fright, is the manager a little bit culpable for getting him so worked up before he left him, <laughs> getting him good and spooked out before he left him there all alone? Well, our hearts are so filled with terror at this point that we really need to bounce into that biotech spot. Goke, goke. that's all you have to do. Goke, goke. just for an hour or two, you Fine. It's the best for the new way New Year's Day Biotech. 
With amazing new Biotex, the stubbornest stains will vanish. Yes, vanish clean away. Just by soaking your laundry overnight in cold water, or for an hour or two in warm water, or by pre-washing it quickly in your washing machine. Get amazing new Biotex today. Clean, clean, everything soon will be clean, clean for the whole world to see. That is the second verse that you don't always get, but I made sure that you did. For the whole world to see. There's something so poignant about that. Okay, we're going back to the waxworks now. And there's a lovely little bit of writing here. When Hewson is all alone in the first hours and he's noticing the silence, they describe it in a way that you may not have thought of before, but you know is true. The dim, unwavering light fell on the rows of figures, which were so uncannily like human beings that the stillness and the silence seemed unnatural, ghastly even. Hewson missed the sound of breathing, the rustling of clothes, the hundred and one minute noises one hears when even the deepest silence has fallen upon a crowd. Nice. Nicely done. Well described. It's very true. Now, in the next scene where he starts losing it immediately, as any of us would in that situation, it's perfect that they have him in conversation with himself, where he says, if I turn around and look, it's an admission that I'm, I'm actually afraid. And then his own voice says, you are afraid, and that's why you won't turn around. And he argues with himself. It's perfect. It's a wonderful metaphor for how we talk ourselves into the fear. We talk ourselves into it. <laughs> we are our, our own worst enemy when it comes to overcoming our most primal fears. The more we say to ourselves, there's nothing there, there's nothing in the dark, the more we think there is something in the dark, and we know that. <laughs> we know that. Do it to ourselves. We play ourselves every time this way. Oh, it would be well, thought Hewson. Yet somehow, what prevented him most of all from feeling absolutely comfortable was the knowledge that Dr. Gautet was directly behind him. He knew, in fact, that the little Frenchman's waxen stare was directed at the back of his neck. He itched for the desire to turn round. Come on. The nerves have started already. If I turn and look at that dressed-up dummy, it'll be an admission of funk. It's because you're afraid that you won't turn and look at him. Rubbish. I'm not afraid at all. Yes, you are. Rot. Complete nutter rot. Afraid? A lot of waxworks. Not of a lot of waxworks. Just one. Dr. Bourdet. <laughs> French fool. Not so healthy now, is he? Ah. Look at his eyes. Don't want to see his eyes. All the same, he had to eventually have a quick look round at Dr. Bourdet. Only a waxwork like the rest of them. They're all only waxworks. All the same, he took another quick look behind him. Now, it did not worry Hewson too much, because it was, after all, only his imagination. But there seemed to be a subtle change in the grouping of the figures around Dr. Bourdet. Or was it Dr. Bourdet himself? Huh. <sighs> Looking to the front of him, he looked at Crippen. Again, he had the slight feeling that something, somewhere, was a bit different. Crippen seemed, for instance, to have turned one degree to the left. I must have moved my chair a bit. 
Oh, Crippin, it was me who moved. <laughs> and just then, the waxwork of Grey moved a hand. At least Hewson thought the hand moved. Just for his own peace of mind, Raymond Hewson gave the waxen figure a little poke. Wax. No more, no less. Lifeless, life-like wax. Nice long silence drawn out after that. It's it's a nice encapsulation of a human failing. We'll get even more of this in the next scene, where he keeps going a little more crazy. Everything that he does to try to reduce the threat of the figures talking to them, he goes from talking to himself to talking to them, which is the inevitable stage two of giving in to your fear the moment you begin to address them in a way that proves that you don't think they could ever really answer back, you are in conversation with them and you can't be in conversation with something that doesn't exist. So he is going to go round and round into phase two in this next little scene. And then he turned suddenly and looked over his right shoulder. He had neither seen nor heard a movement, but it was as if some sixth sense had made him aware of one. He looked straight into the vapid countenance of Lefroy, which smiled vacantly back as if to say, It wasn't I. <laughs> of course it wasn't you. <laughs> wasn't any of you. And then he looked back, and Crippin seemed to have shifted his position slightly. Hmm. Can't trust that little beggar. Can't trust any of them. Once you take your eyes off them, they move. Not good enough, this isn't. I reckon I'm going. Not going to spend a night with a lot of waxworks who move when you aren't looking at them. No, Hewson, please. They can't move. What are you thinking of? <laughs> he encountered the mild, baleful stare of poor Depp. <laughs> ah, almost got you that time, Crippen. All the rest of you, too. I do see one of you move, I'll... I'll smash you to pieces. Smash you! Now, we've all been waiting eagerly by this point for the statue to come alive. We know that's what's going to happen, and we want that. That's why we chose this episode. It's well done again when it does happen that the most terror Hewson really feels, the pinnacle of his fear, is when he just finally looks Bourdette in the eyes. Not when Bourdette comes to life and says, good evening. His saying, good evening, you could almost miss it. It's so silent. It's so quiet at the end of the long shrieking sound effect that is our glimpse inside Hewson's mind. It's looking at him because looking at him is a kind of giving up, as Hewson had predicted. Just locking eyes with this thing is what terrifies him. And then the statue comes to life and speaks to him and takes his life. 
at that point, it's kind of like in those so many of those amazing Quiet Please episodes where we realized that it was never signposted, but during a scene, the narrator actually went crazy from fear. That was the moment when the narrator lost his mind from fear and he didn't really know that happened and we didn't really know that happened until the end of the episode where he comes after us. The moment he locks eyes with Bourdette is when Hewson loses his mind from fear, not when Bourdette starts speaking to him and mesmerizing him and cutting his throat, which is just a wonderful way of saying the fear is in ourselves. If the, if the call's coming from inside the house, the fear is definitely coming from inside ourselves. We are the only ones who have the power to scare ourselves to death. So let's toss that fourth opportunity out there. That Hewson scared himself to death, that the real Bordet killed him, that the waxwork actually came alive, or that fear somehow coming from the outside, from the setting, from the things the manager said, from the figures, is what killed him. But I think we know which door is the right one now. Then the gaze of Dr. Bourdet urged, challenged, and finally compelled him to turn. Huh? Hewson stared into those dreadful hypnotic eyes. His own eyes were dilated, and his mouth at first set into a grin of terror lifted at the corners into a snarl. You moved, Blasty. Yes, you did. I saw you. I saw you. Dr. Baudet's movements were quite leisurely. He stepped off his pedestal with the mincing movements of a lady alighting from a bus. I need hardly tell you that not until I overheard the conversation between yourself and the worthy manager of this establishment did I suspect that I should have the pleasure of a companion here for the night. You cannot move or speak without my bidding. But you can hear perfectly well. Something tells me that uh, you are, uh, shall I say, nervous? And my dear no illusions. I am not one of these contemptible little effigies suddenly come to life. I am Dr. Bourdet himself. <clears throat> Pardon me, but... Uh, I am a little steep. Uh, let me explain. Circumstances with which I need not fatigue you have made it desirable that I should live in England. I was close to the building this evening when I saw a policeman regarding me thought too curiously. I guessed that he intended to follow me and perhaps ask embarrassing questions. So I mingled with the crowd and came in here. Inspiration showed me a certain means of escape. I raised a cry of fire. And when all the fools had rushed to the stairs, I stripped my effigy of the caped coat, which we all be wearing... Donned it in my effigy behind the platform at the back there and took its place on the pedestal. <laughs> I own I have spent the most fatiguing evening. 
The world is divided into collectors and non-collectors. The collectors collect anything according to their own individual tastes. I collect throats. And the doctor regarded Hewson's throat with interest mingled with disfavor. My activities of late have been curtailed. I am glad, though, of the present opportunity of gratifying my somewhat unusual whim. I should never have selected you from choice, of course. No, I like men with thick necks. Thick red necks. This is a little French razor. The blade, you will observe, is very narrow. It does not cut very deep, but deep enough. In just one little moment, you shall see for yourself. I shall ask you the little civil question of all polite barbers. Does the razor suit you, sir? You will have the goodness to raise your chin a little. Thank you. And a little more. Just a little more. Ah, thank you. Merci, monsieur. Ah, merci. Merci. wasn't going to make it through the night, didn't we? That's why we chose this. <laughs> All right, so that is him. We just witnessed how he died, didn't we? Well, we'll see. The narrator's going to come in here with a second ending and try to throw it all into confusion for us. And he will end with the provocative question that is, of course, at the heart of this well-worn story. Over one end of the chamber was a thick skylight of frosted glass, which, by day, let in a few sickly and filtered rays from the floor above. After sunrise, these began to mingle with the subdued light from the electric bulbs, and this mingled illumination added a certain ghastliness to a scene which needed no additional touch of horror. The waxwork figures stood apathetically in their places, waiting to be admired by the crowds who would presently wander fearfully among them. In their midst, in the centre gangway, Hewson sat still, leaning far back in his armchair. His chin was up-tilted, as if he were expecting to receive attention from a barber, and although there was not a scratch upon his throat, nor indeed anywhere upon his whole body, he was cold and quite dead. His previous employers were wrong in having him credited with no imagination. Dr. Baudet, on his pedestal, watched the dead man unemotionally. He did not move, nor was he capable of motion. But then, after all, he was only a waxwork. Girl, don't step! Don't come at us with that. <laughs> Don't come at us with that as if we were ridiculous after you're the one who gave us four different options, that being only one of them. Maybe it really was Bordet who somehow 
replaced his own waxwork and stood very still for an hour or so and then killed the guy. It could have been that. Oh, the waxwork is inside ourselves. <laughs> you have to, though. You have to reduce it to that very simple premise. You have to end the story by saying, of course he was crazy. Waxworks don't come to life because that's what keeps the impossibility alive. And that makes it the mystery that makes people believe. The less possible it is, the more and the more happily people can believe in the what they like to call not the impossible, but the unknown. So this story has to safely deliver us all back into the realm of the unknown. Who knows what happened? <laughs> that is what you get with a night in the waxworks, no matter where you listen to it. And that's what we got from Beyond Midnight. It's enjoyable simply for the work that it lets us do of going back to the real world and giving ourselves a good slap in the face to remember the lesson that we have learned here. As Orson Welles says at the end of War of the Worlds, please remember the terrible lesson you've learned tonight, that almost everything we most deeply fear is going to kill us is our own nonsense, our own nonsensical brains telling us crazy stories. Try to keep that in mind. Try to take that into your life as you spend a night in Shafter, Walkerton, Portsmouth, or North Ridgeville. I guarantee that it will ensure that you go on living. And that's about as good a guarantee as anyone can give you. Pretty powerful stuff. Believe in that, if you will. And while you're doing that and waiting for another episode to come round, another night at the cauldron, go your way this week. Be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon. Vanish clean away. Just by soaking your laundry overnight in cold water, or for an hour or two in warm water, or by pre-washing it quickly in your washing machine. Get amazing new biotechs today. <laughs>